Hello and welcome to the Real Maxime podcast. I'm Maxime, your host. I'm an economist, former tech entrepreneur, hedge fund founder, and private investor. The gross payment volume processed by all payment facilitators, or PayFAT, is expected to grow at a compound annual growth rate of 28.4% over the next five years. In this accelerated model, the gross payments volume processed by payment facilitators outside of the top four, which are PayPal, Square, Stripe, and Shopify, could be as high as almost $2 trillion in that time. As the payment facilitator market grows and other industry players invest in supporting this expansion, embracing the model will drive more digital payments volume, which benefits the entire payments ecosystem. Our guest today is Caleb Avery, founder and CEO of Tilt, a PayFAC as a service platform that allows B2B SaaS companies to monetize payments that pass through their platform without any of the headaches regulatory compliance, or liabilities of becoming a fully registered facilitator. Caleb is one of the most articulate thought leaders when it comes to deconstructing the mechanics of the payment industry. Traditionally, software companies have had few choices for processing payments on their platforms. Many start out with managed payback providers like Stripe, Square, and Braintree, who offer easy-to-use APIs and instant onboarding, but at a high cost per transaction with no opportunity to benefit from those payments. As software companies grow and realize they could be profiting for those payments, their only options are to work with expensive pay-fax-in-a-box providers that can take months or even years to set up, or to sacrifice their customer experience with traditional credit card processing referral relationships. Caleb founded Till in 2019 after spending nearly a decade advising merchants and enterprise software businesses on how to optimize their payment processing solutions. Caleb's core belief that ISVs should enjoy the lion's share of the revenue, laid the foundation for Tilt, an embedded payment solution that does not require ISVs to compromise on technology, user experience, or economics. In this insightful conversation, we learn about Caleb's early entrepreneurial roots, his deep love for golf before getting sidelined with an injury, and the lasting benefits of sports and leadership roles and team dynamics. We discuss the impact of the macro environment on the fintech industry, to understand customer demands and behaviors. We also consider the potential disruption and adoption of alternate payment methods and crypto rails in the future. Prior to founding Tilde, Caleb also co-founded a credit card processing ISO while in college, which has expanded nationwide to offer processing services for merchants and software businesses. Caleb grew up in Georgia and is a graduate of Furman University in South Carolina. I hope you enjoy our conversation. I grew up in Georgia, so initially grew up in the suburbs outside of Atlanta and moved around a couple of times growing up. We moved when I was in fifth grade, which was a pretty interesting time as a, as a kid to be moving and starting a new school in fifth grade where everybody else was really established in their routines and had their friend groups and then moved again in 10th grade, which proved to be another interesting time in uh, childhood development to be moving. And then for me growing up, I played a lot of sports. I played baseball, football, basketball, but was primarily passionate about baseball and golf. And so that was a, a year-round activity for me growing up and something that I've continued on into adulthood. I ended up playing on an amateur tour for golf my freshman year of college. And so certainly something that if you're following me on LinkedIn, probably seen a lot of <laughs> pictures or videos of, of me golfing over the years. And then we talked a little bit about the start of my entrepreneurial journey. And for me, 
I started selling candy bars when I was in middle school. And so for me, I started to see that the lunches that I was bringing to school were more attractive for some of my friends than what their mom was packing for them. And so it was a, a nice, easy way to make some money as a youngster, essentially just trading whatever I had in my lunchbox for whatever they had and picking up some extra cash along the way. I mean, that will start you as an entrepreneur. One of the things I see is, I know it sounds cliche, but I see a lot of selling lemonade. I see a lot of very similar stories to yours. Usually there's some inclination at an early age to want to monetize opportunities or want to just to take control over the ability to make money or start something. I gather you're probably very competitive given how many sports you played. Is that a fair assessment? Very. I think that's a very fair assessment. I would say if I had to describe you know, my personality now and growing up, I would say independent and competitive would be two really good words to describe me. And I'm sure my siblings and parents would probably use those two words. Yeah. Some people just meant to lead, not followers. You seem to be you know, one of them. I would say you've also talked about sports. I mean, golf is sort of an individual contributor sport, but you've mentioned a lot of team sports as well. And so what was your takeaway? So like there's the competitive stance and attitude. There's something about team sports that I think builds, I think, sustainable lifelong lessons and skills. Is that something that you've been able to draw upon as you've built your business and scaled? Yeah, certainly. I think even at a very early age, you start to see a lot of team dynamics that that organize where you have some folks that just naturally alert, emerge as leaders than an organization and then some that naturally take on the, the role of followers. And I think for me, really almost every team that I was ever on, I certainly saw myself in a leadership role. Whether I was naturally the most talented one on the team is different conversation, but certainly saw myself in that leadership role within the team dynamics. And I think for me, it's certainly something with the companies that I built over the years that you build this muscle of leadership and empathy, you know, working day in and day out with folks on the team. And it's the same types of dynamics and culture that I've tried to build in the companies that I've built over the years. Yeah. And you're alluding to something that I think is important, which is as a leader, your role is not necessarily to be the best individual contributor. It's a very, and oftentimes you see it on trading floors, you see it in software development, you see it in sports, obviously, whereby the individual like outperforming athlete may not exhibit leadership skills. And if even like one can argue like a Tom Brady, for example, is an exceptional leader in the context of football and sports, obviously an excellent player. But, you know, he's always had in those years the ability to attract great talent and has had individual contributors within his teams that were just outperformers, like as individual contributors. And so I think as a leader also, it's part of it is the ability to create the right coordination, to create the right inspiration, but also to recruit, hire, and retain the best performers. Yeah, it's attracting the best talent, but it's also creating alignment and getting the most out of those individuals. And I think Tom Brady is an, an excellent example of being able to pull together and assemble a team that's really greater than the sum of the team is greater than the individual parts. And I think that's something that Tom Brady individually does just a phenomenal job with. Yeah, absolutely. 
And so golf, before we move on, you know, obviously probably very helpful in the context of business. It's very, very popular sport and activity when it comes to getting deals done or just getting to know people. What's your secret? If you had to part with listeners with where you think the secret lies or are you still traveling your own journey? For my friends who play golf, I don't. It really is a lifelong journey getting to know yourself as a player. Yeah. I would say golf is one of those sports that can be a lot of fun, but it's also incredibly frustrating. And so if I had to think about one learning or lesson that gotten out of years of frustrating myself out on the golf course, it's the idea of being able to put the last shot behind you and and refocus and get ready to hit the next shot. And I think for me as an entrepreneur, building a startup, as much as there are a lot of highs, There's also a lot of obstacles and hurdles and challenges that you have to overcome. And having that ability to encounter obstacles, encounter roadblocks, and not let that affect the next day and the next week and the next decision that you're making and really be able to put that in the past, put on the game face and focus on whatever the next challenge or the next decision is ahead, I think is certainly something that you learn from years of golf. Yeah. Keeping cool under pressure is definitely one thing that sets top athletes apart from the rest of the pack. I mean, I'm a big motorsports fan, F1 fan, Indy 500. And where you see at the top, that's really what makes a difference more so than the craft. I think it manifests itself in visibly superior craft, but I, I think ultimately it's all down to the ability to perform, make the right decisions under duress or pressure. So school what topics? Like, What really got you interested? Were you interested in school? Were you yearning to go on and start working? What was the progression there in in high school and college? And how did you pick your studies? Yeah, I would say school naturally came pretty easy for me. So I graduated third in my class in high school and really did not put in a lot of effort and energy relative to a lot of my peers. And I would say, you know, similar story for me in college where I was able to maintain a pretty high GPA with relatively little effort going towards school. And for me, I really had this passion to do something else besides school. I mean, I generally do and still enjoy learning. I love math. I love building spreadsheets. I love reading. I'm definitely passionate about continuing to consume information. But for me, you know, I started my first company between my sophomore and junior year of college. And there was definitely a notable shift for me in, frankly, just my level of happiness when I had something outside of school to be able to go put my time and energy into. And really, the transition for me, you know, freshman year of college, I was really focused on my golf game. And so I was playing on the amateur tour. I was traveling around most weekends playing in golf tournaments. And then I got injured. And so I had knee and shoulder surgery all at once, which was a a really, really enjoyable time. (laughs) And it really sidelined me from golf and sports in general. And so I had a lot of free time sophomore year that I didn't have freshman year. And so started thinking about, you know, okay, what what do I want to do outside of school? Because I knew for me, the passion was was not sitting in, in lectures, sitting in class. And so that was, I think, really a big driving factor in me starting the first company that I did. That's such a, a great story. And I would imagine also 
you probably very frustrating at first, right? For someone who was just really active and wanting to do that. So like really transferring that energy in a positive manner towards other endeavors, right? Yeah, 100%. I think when you're devoted as I was at that point in time, particular craft, like that becomes the routine that becomes, okay, I've got three hours on this day, or I've got my Saturdays available. That's how I intend to spend my time. And so having essentially being forced out of that activity was definitely something that was difficult to process in the early days. But I think per the earlier conversation about moving on from obstacles and resetting and focusing on what's next, that's just the mentality that you have to have. And I think for me, I was relatively quickly able to pick up the pieces and figure out you know, where I wanted to spend my time and energy moving forward. Yeah. And close on, on that part, Kobe Bryant interview, I remember watching where he's like, whether you win or lose, the next day you get up, you got to go out, you got to play again, you got to practice again. Don't let the highs and lows really carry you. You got to celebrate the wins. You got to learn from the losses. But at the end of the day, you get up the next day, you got to go back at it. So keeping that, I think, in mind. So talk to us about your career progression in the early days. Yeah. So like I mentioned, started the first company sophomore year of college. And so for me, I was a 19-year-old kid that had this crazy idea to go door-to-door selling credit card processing services to small business owners. And in the early days, really had no concept of what that business would turn into, or even really that payments would become the career trajectory. For me, it was really, okay, I see this opportunity. I see the ability to go out here and earn some money in college. And it started before it was even really a business. We started going out and interviewing small business owners and just talking to them about their merchant services, their experiences. And what we found out pretty quickly was that on average, small business owners hated their current credit card processors. And it was really interesting to see the like visceral reaction and just the candid comments that you would get from some of these small business owners, just asking them questions like, what has been your experience? Have you ever had a bad experience with credit card processing? And so over time, decided that that was you know, a business that had legs. And so initially, it was just my partner and I going door to door as the two of us. We built up a nice little book of business and had a good amount of merchants in the Greenville, South Carolina area. But it really started to scale when we started to think about bringing on sales agents underneath us. And so over time, that business has amassed hundreds of sales agents you know, in it, but a, a very humble beginnings <laughs> for the business. And then as we started to see these additional opportunities you know, along the way, continued to scale up that company. It's interesting because I feel like we're going to talk a lot about go-to-market and growth with Tilt, but just a little I hear of this seems like whilst an amazing endeavor to really understand the fabric and the problem and the pain points of the customer base and something that comes across repeatedly in your interviews is just this very, very keen understanding of your audience, the persona of ultimately your buyers, your customers, what you're really trying to solve for. And I think for any business, it has to start with the customers. We've had too much in the last 10 years of easy money, these sort of like, let's throw stuff at the wall, let's hack, and we'll build something and people will come to it. 
No, I think real businesses are about, all right, well, is there a problem out there? Do you know your customer? Do you know what they're really facing? And if you solve for that, people will pay for it. They will pay for it. The other thing I draw from this is probably an understanding ex post, right? Not so much ex ante that it was probably a hard model to scale, right? Sounds like, you know, if you're going door to door, physically convincing merchants and stores, it's very hard to create operating leverage from that. And that's a challenge for a lot of non-enterprise plays is how do you actually scale sales without having almost like one for one linear correlation between how big your sales team grows and the opportunity set? Yeah, two things there that I think really resonate with me. The first, the idea of the importance of the problem that you're solving. I think it was the last podcast recording that I did. They were asking me for, you know, what advice I would give for other entrepreneurs scaling up. And for me, the advice was don't fall in love with the idea of starting a business. Fall in love with whatever the problem it is that you're solving. Because the reality is building any business is hard. And if you're not solving a real world problem that people are willing to pay for, and it is a problem that you are passionate about solving, it's going to be a very long road ahead in that business. And so that was kind of the first thing. And then certainly for us scaling up that first company, there's a limit to how many doors you personally can knock. And for us, originally, when we started thinking about scaling up the business, our first thought was, well, let's go hire all of our friends. We're good at selling credit card processing. Surely our friends are going to be good at this as well. And we found out pretty quickly that that was a terrible idea. And our friends were not like us and were horrendous at selling credit card processing for the most part. And so really the big unlock for us was starting to realize that we could find folks that were already in the industry, that already knew the business, that were already comfortable with door-to-door sales and the model and give them a better experience, help them make more money, give them a better product offering, give them a better support experience. And that's what really started to unlock the scaling of that first business. So how big did it get? So by the time I left, we were processing over a billion dollars a year in payments, and it's scaled up quite a bit since I've taken a step back in the business. And so what was the transition there? Why did you decide to leave? Were there any setbacks or anything that happened along the way that you drew some learnings from? Yeah, I would say for me personally, I did not get into that first company to spend 30 years doing door-to-door sales. (laughs) That was not the goal at the outset. And I think for me, what I realized, whatever, five years in or something was that I just didn't have the same passion for door-to-door sales that I did when I first started, but I was still passionate about payments. I was still passionate about helping merchants. And so for me, it was really this process of trying to think through what can I do to stay within this industry that I love, that I've learned, that I know inside and out, that doesn't involve me spending five hours a day going out cold calling merchants. And so I ended up moving to Colorado and started doing uh, consulting and angel investing. And for me, it was really interesting to kind of change the perspective that I was taking on the payments industry, where traditionally it was more direct merchant focused with the first business. And then what I started to realize was that software companies had very, very similar problems and frustrations, you know, to the merchants with the big credit card processing companies. And so 
I think in total over the years have written close to 30 different angel checks to various software businesses and then have consulted for dozens more. And I started to see that there was this opportunity for me to apply my talents in a way that was just more fulfilling, you know, for me as an individual than what I was doing previously. So what was the real conclusions that you drew there that would you say prompted you on deciding to launch your venture? What was the trigger there? Yeah. So between the first ISO and TILD, I had a number of consulting engagements, but there were a couple in particular that that really started to drive towards me founding what became TILD, what became Payfac as a service. One of them in particular was a software company doing about a billion dollars of payments volume. And for me, it was a really interesting experience. I'm going in to start first day consulting for this company, and I'm sitting there with the entire management team. And what I found out pretty quickly in that meeting was there was not a single person in that room that actually had almost any payments knowledge, certainly no payments experts in the room. But really, fundamentally, I have small business owners in my portfolio that knew more about payments than the software company doing a billion dollars in payments. That was a really interesting initial observation for me because a lot of the companies that I had consulted with previously were smaller, 50 million, 100 million, 200 million a year in payments. And kind of gave them the benefit of the doubt, okay, smaller software company, you guys, it's understandable that you guys aren't experts in this, but that company was doing over a billion dollars of payments volume. And they really thought that they wanted to go become a payfac. And for me, that was really my first introduction into the payfac ecosystem, the payfac experience. And so I spent a lot of time, probably over a period of about four months, engaging with several of our now competitors to really understand what it actually took to go become a registered payment facilitator for a software company. And what I realized was that traditionally, that process was about a two-year multi-million dollar experience. And so, you know, big companies like Stripe, Square, Braintree, PayPal, no brainer for them to go become a registered payfac. But if you're a vertical software business doing a couple hundred million, even a billion dollars in payments volume, it's pretty difficult to justify two-year multi-million dollar expenditure. And several of our now competitors had popped up you know, in the space. This was probably about five and a half, six years ago. And their solution to this problem set was what they called payfac in a box. And fundamentally, these payfac in a box providers took that two-year multi-million dollar process, and they had made it about a six-month, couple hundred thousand dollar process. The problem was it was still six months. <laughs> it was still hundreds of thousands of dollars. You know, the software company still has to build out a team. They're taking on underwriting risk. They're taking on liability. And so the problem was clear. Software companies wanted to monetize payments. They wanted a better underwriting experience for their merchants. The problem was the solutions that I was seeing in the market, I did not believe were the right solution to this problem. And so for me, I had seen the same problem set dozens of times over the years. And so I was convinced that there was this real problem, but I was not convinced that the existing solutions were providing an adequate solution for the companies that existed in the space. And so I spent close to a year convincing myself by going out and doing market research and talking to some of my former customers to say, hey, if there was the opportunity for you to generate more revenue to get an instant digital onboarding process, 
and you could take advantage of all of the benefits of the payment facilitator model, but you could be up and running in under a week. And for me, this one week time frame was to me this like pay fac holy grail. It was this mythical time frame where, hey, if these things could be true, would you be interested? And unequivocally, all of these customers that had said no to going and becoming a payfac were like, well, yeah, we would definitely consider this model if we could get up and running in a week. And so that became the original hypothesis for what became Tilled, what became payfac as a service. And so here we are almost five years into the journey trying to make that one week dream a reality. It's such a great way. They say when, when you go out and you raise money, the best way to convince investors is actually to tell it like it is, right? It's not about like some fancy set of slides on a deck. It's really, I think what's been, and I, I usually love to hear how entrepreneurs really tee up the problem, right? Like the purpose, the problem, the solution, and, and also the market size and all these things, you're checking those boxes right now, obviously a significantly large opportunity here in terms of addressable and obtainable market, but a very clear description rooted in years of really doing empirical market research, right? Not necessarily for academic purposes or anything, just being in the field and really knowing your subject matter inside out. I am just curious if you could, just for listeners who may not be as fluent in payments, you talk about payment facilitators, there's a lot of terminology being thrown around these days. You know, people talk about orchestration, they talk about processors. If you could, in sort of layman terms, kind of talk to us about what a payment facilitator is and why it's so important and where does it fit in the payment ecosystem? Yeah, certainly. Probably one of my favorite topics. You can imagine I get asked that question every now and then. For me, when I think about the payment facilitator or payfac model, oftentimes where I start is thinking about the comparison between the payfac model and the traditional ISO model, because practically the payfac model and the ISO model are really distribution models for payments. They are options for how small business owners get access to accept credit card payments at their business. And under the traditional ISO model, each small business owner has to go through a very thorough vetting process in order to get their merchant account created to be able to accept credit card payments at their business. And so still here in the modern times that we live in, you have to have the bank's logo printed on the application in this ISO universe. You've got to have ISO disclaimers on the bottom of your websites. And typically you're collecting supporting documentation like a driver's license, voided check, prior processing statements. There's this very high bar that merchants have to kind of jump over in order to get credit cards accepted at their business. And the big difference under the PayFact model is that instead of every merchant getting their own merchant account and their own merchant ID, the payment facilitator goes through this very extensive vetting process with the banks, the acquirers, the card brands to get registered as what's called a master merchant. And once that PayFact, so companies like Stripe, Square, Toast, Braintree, MindBody are big examples I'm sure a lot of the listeners have heard of. Once that PayFact has gone through that registration process, to become a master merchant, then that payfac has a lot more latitude in what that underwriting and onboarding process looks like for all the sub-merchants, which are those small business owners signing up underneath the payfac. And so when you think about where that sits 
in the universe. The payment facilitators still have sponsor banks. They're typically still going through processors or acquirers. Some of the Payfax have become direct acquirers themselves, like an Adyen or a Stripe. But for a lot of the Payfax, they're still leveraging the traditional rails. They're still leveraging a lot of the traditional players, but they've built out a gateway. They've built out the underwriting systems and take on the liability you know, for all of the submergents underneath them. That is probably one of the clearest explanation. And I think listeners will be very, very thankful for that. So you have this idea and how do you get started? Did you have co-founders? No. So I started out originally as a solo founder for probably close to, I guess it was a little over 18 months. And for me, I spent that first 18 months, you know, one, convincing myself that the opportunity (laughs) was real because I was investing my own time, my own money in building this out. And so there were a couple of like key hurdles for me to get over. There were technical hurdles, there were regulatory hurdles, and there were there were some legal hurdles as well. And so really spent the better part of those first 18 months, you know, one, working with contract developers to build out the first iteration of the software, because I knew that for us, one of the things that I knew had to be true to hit that one week, you know, milestones that we had to build our own gateway, we had to build out our own technology, our own API, and really simplify the architecture and the scope of work for a developer coming in to to integrate to Tilt and do everything that we could to replicate the Stripe, you know, API and developer experience. And so was investing a lot of my own time and energy managing contract developers to build out that first version of the product. But then I was really spending a lot of time working with banks, working with processors and trying to find the first person to believe in the model. Because the reality at that point in time was that Payfax as a service didn't exist. And so this concept of going to you know traditional banks, traditional processors and saying, hey, I want to give software companies all of the benefits of the Payfax model, but they're not going to register as a Payfax. There were a lot of people that were not convinced that was a model that made sense and a model that was going to move, you know, that we were going to be able to move forward with. And so it took me about 11 months to get our first banking and processing contract uh, secured, which was a huge milestone for the business because, you know, as I mentioned earlier, typically Payfax are sitting on top of the kind of legacy rails, the traditional institutions. And so for us, we couldn't even get out of the starting blocks without getting these partnerships in place. And so for me, I felt comfortable essentially hiring on the first employees that were effectively co-founders into the business. Once we had crossed some of these regulatory hurdles, we had the first contracts in place and we were at least pretty far down the path with what would become the MVP of the software. And so that's all on your dime. A lot of it was on my dime. So we had brought in very small friends and family money, but a lot of it I was funding. So strong conviction. And honestly, again, in terms of convincing investors, probably one of the most convincing arguments is just the fact that you were so committed to this idea. This is not a deck, really, right? I mean, there's a whole process that you undertook there. Did you end up raising initial seed capital from venture? We did, but it was fairly late in the process. And so we were, when did we bring in outside money? It was almost two years in. I think we were like 22 months into the journey 
before we brought on outside capital. And really, the spark for me was COVID. And so for me, you know, I was investing a lot of time, money, energy into the business. And a lot of it was funded from the cash flow that I was still receiving from my first business. And the reality, if you remember the start of COVID, <laughs> was that small businesses on the whole were closed for quite some time. And so credit card payments for a lot of the merchants that we work with were not being processed. And so for me, my personal circumstances changed and I had just had my second kid. And so for me, I was at a point in time where always fun to have the conversations with your wife like, hey, are you sure you want to spend you know, all this money every month on this business that's not generating any revenue yet? But I, I was convinced that what we were building uh, was a business that needed to exist. And so started to network with outside investors. And as much as I had done a lot of angel investing myself, I had never actually raised capital for a company from the CEO side of the table. And so that was definitely a learning experience for me figuring out you know, how to fundraise. And that particular point in time was also a pretty difficult time to be fundraising. And so for us, the venture capital world was shut down effectively for many months, where investors were essentially triaging their existing portfolios and weren't writing really any new checks. Maybe some folks were, but on the whole, most VCs were triaging their portfolios and they were not writing new checks. And so we ended up being the first check for a lot of our investors that they had written post-COVID where they had not met the founders in person. And I remember that being a really interesting leap of faith you know, on both sides. So these are folks giving me millions of dollars and neither of us have ever met in shaken hands in person. But yeah, we raised a little over 2 million in uh, whether it's pre-seed, seed, however you want to label it, back in the tail end of, of 2020 and subsequently raised four total rounds of funding, about 34 million overall as we've scaled up the business you know, over the last couple of years. Any takeaways for listeners? What did you learn as part of this process? Because how do you go from raising 2 million, it being your first time, albeit in a tough period, but the tail end of 2020 was actually starting to heat up again? It got good. It got good by the end. It was rough in the beginning, for sure. So what would be your advice along the way for people getting started? Yeah, I think the reality of the story that you're telling evolves at different points the journey in the business, but that first round or two of funding, the investors are really betting on you, the founder. And so if you can't sell yourself and your story, it's going to be really difficult and I would say almost impossible to raise money for the business that you're building. And so you have to get comfortable selling yourself, your journey, your vision, why you're passionate about the, the business that you're building. Because as much as you joke about, oh, the business wasn't just a pitch deck, it kind of was <laughs> at that point in time. As much as I had done a lot of work to validate the problem and get over some of these hurdles, we were not in market. The website wasn't even live. We had a countdown timer on the website. And so we were not generating revenue. We did not have paying customers. But the second point that I would make is that traction can mean a lot of different things. And so if you can really get comfortable articulating what forms of traction you have at the various stages of the business, that's how investors make that decision of how much risk exists. And so for us, some of the forms of traction were customer interviews, the contract with our processors, 
And then, you know, later on, we had LOIs or customers that were committed to working with us, even though we still weren't live, you know, with the product. And so we were able to show traction long before we were actually, you know, generating revenue in the business. And that was ultimately how we were able to raise, you know, quite a bit of capital, you know, prior to going live. And then subsequently, as we've gotten in market and have customers and have revenue, being able to show all of the important metrics that we're tracking continues to get investors comfortable with the story as the business has evolved. How has the climate evolved? Before we move on to drilling a little bit deeper in in, in the business itself, obviously, fintech is one of the sectors that really got battered, starting with public markets. I think it's there's a few reasons why that the sector as a whole just got ahead of itself. I think a lot of primitives, a lot of business models, really, you know, when you think about those neo balance sheet businesses were really predicated on a low rate environment, especially on the subprime side of things. So those businesses are just unsustainable. You know, valuations got ahead of themselves. There's a lot of tourist money going into the industry. And then fundamentally, I mean, one thing that I think gets lost in translation is you can't untether fintech from the macro environment. And that is because ultimately it's about delivering financial services to consumers, right? Whether you're a B2B playing fintech or B2C, you just have to understand that ultimately it's about what do customers want and how are they expecting financial services to be delivered and which financial services are they more likely to gravitate towards based on the day-to-day lives. And ultimately, the macro environment has a big impact on that, right? And so if it's an environment where it's easy to borrow, well, naturally, you're going to have a lot of lending primitives emerging and being offered. I think the constant throughout Really, aside from the digital exogenous shocks that you referred to, like during the pandemic, obviously payment flows came to a halt, at least on physical brick and mortar side. Digital picked up, right? But so I think it's very important to not lose sight of the fact that it's all part of the same economy. And especially financial services are very cyclical to the macro environment, probably more so than most sectors in many ways. And so how has it evolved from you? Like you're up and running, presumably you've got cash in the bank, you've got runway. What is the dialogue with investors right now? Not saying you're raising actively, but is it one where they're like, all right, well, you're set. We understand what you're doing. It makes sense. You're sort of in that camp of like, it doesn't really matter what's happening. Like we think there's a lot of value there. Or do you sense a little bit of difficulty there? Yeah, I would say... Certainly, there's been a lot of fluctuation over the last year and especially the last nine months or so. And so, you know, when I think about conversations, I mean, several a week with both kind of current and new investors that we're talking to. And so I feel like I have a pretty good pulse on the market. And overall, it feels like there's been this like flight to quality. So investors are still writing checks, deals are still getting done. Certainly, valuation multiples have taken a hit. But practically speaking, the valuation multiples in 21, 22 are unsustainable. And so it's not really fair to compare the multiples today to the multiples then, because that was just a, a crazy period of time. And so at least from my perspective, it feels like over the last couple of months, the markets are opening back up. Companies that have 
strong growth, strong unit economics, great teams, great products are still able to raise money. We pulled together around December of last year. So things were already taking a turn, but the business was strong. And so we were able to bring in pocket of capital on reasonably attractive terms. I think the reality to the second point that you made about the macro environment is that investors have really started to take a hard look, both at at unit economics and business fundamentals, but also what impact does the current macro environment have on this particular business or business model that you're talking about, where on the one hand, if you're in the residential mortgage lending space, probably not a lot of investors getting particularly excited about your business, just given the current environment. Whereas where we're at, where some other companies are fortunate to be in, is that the current environment's actually creating a tailwind for us, not a headwind. And so for us, the biggest macro shift that we felt is that historically, when I looked at our segment of the payments ecosystem being software-led payments. So we're working with vertical software platforms that want to embed payments within their ecosystem. Traditionally, I had divided our space into three segments. So I thought about companies that were doing between zero and 50 million of annual payments volume, companies between 50 million and 2 billion of annual payments volume, and companies doing north of 2 billion. And traditionally, I thought about Stripe as the category leader in that early stage segment. I thought about Payfac as a service, as the logical choice for the mid-market, and then companies north of 2 billion really two, three, four years ago, most of those companies were deciding to go become registered Payfax themselves. And what we have seen over the last nine months or so is that our TAM has gotten substantially larger because you have earlier stage companies, startups, seed stage businesses that are saying, hey, we have to figure out how to monetize payments. We absolutely have to increase average revenue per unit. We have to make more money every one of these customers because we have to either get to cash positive as quickly as we can, or we have to get to a higher run rate to be able to raise the next round of funding. And so that's on the smaller end, you're seeing more and more companies that have decided they can't give away all of that revenue to Stripe. They have to generate that revenue from day one. And then on the larger end, you've got growth equity, private equity backed, late stage companies doing billions of dollars in payments that over the last couple of years, traditionally would have gone and become registered Payfax themselves. And we've seen real shift in the strategy and the mindset from both the founders and the investors behind these businesses, where a lot of these investors are now starting to really question, like, at what point does it actually pencil out to go become a Payfax? Because in this environment, the idea of adding headcount and taking on liability is not quite as attractive as it was two years ago when interest rates were effectively zero and capital was effectively free. And so I think we've been fortunate to be in a space that has gotten substantially hotter as the capital markets have shifted and as the environment has taken a downturn. That doesn't mean that it's all positive. We still ultimately are processing payments for small business owners and we have small business owners going out of business. We have payment volumes in some sectors that are shrinking. And so it's not to say that it's all roses and sunshine, but on the whole, we're experiencing pretty significant 
Tailwinds boosting the overall payfac as a service business model and then tilled individually as a company was certainly a beneficiary just seeing companies small medium large turning to to this model to figure out how to monetize their payments that's awesome and so talk to us about the actual business model right because one of the things and I spent a lot of time thinking about it as an investor is and also for listeners again it's payment means many different things and in your case Talk to us about your business model, because it sounds to me like you actually sell a subscription to to folks out there and abstracting the payfac on their behalf, right? Yeah, certainly. So I guess probably helpful to set the stage, like what kind of payments are we talking about? So let's use a very specific example. So let's take dental software platform selling to dentists. And so for Tilled, our initial partner or customer is the dental software platform. But the payments that we're talking about are patients paying the dentist. So you got your teeth cleaned, you need to pay $200. You're giving your credit card either before or at that dental location. And so Tilled is facilitating the infrastructure for the software platform to embed that opportunity for their customers, which are the merchants, to accept payments from their downstream customers. And so when you think about our business model, we have two key parts to the business model. We have a SaaS or a subscription fee that we charge the software company for access to the Tilled platform. And that varies based on the size and scale of the company, but generally starts about $2,500 a month. And then on top of that, we have a revenue share model with our software partners. And so fundamentally, the way that we all generate revenue here is that the merchant, the dentist, is going to pay more money than it costs to process that individual payment. And so order of magnitude, most merchants are paying 2.93%, at least for card not present online payments, to process those transactions. On average, those transactions cost more like 2.2%. And so most of the portfolios, most of the companies that we work with, there's 70 to 80 basis points of gross margin. And that's the delta between the 3% that the merchant, the dentist is paying and the 2.2% that it actually costs you know, wholesale to process those transactions. And so our model is to share 75% of that revenue. So 50 to 60 basis points you know, of that gross revenue, we're sharing back to this software company. And practically speaking, that can turn into a very sizable revenue stream very quickly. You look at some of the big examples like Toast and Shopify, where I think Shopify makes like two times as much money on payments as they do on their software fees. And Toast makes about four times as much money on payments as they do their core software fees. And so that half a percent or 50 basis points can add up very quickly if you've got a lot of volume running through your platform. Yeah, that, that's a healthy take rate. Now, that being said, question, top of mind question, looking at those business models, which, you know, it's interesting. They're not the same, but they're come from the trading world, somewhat similar on some level. What is the risk that 2.2% actually increases, in your opinion? So there are pretty regular documented increases on average coming from the card brands. And so every six months, Visa, MasterCard, Amex, 
have the opportunity to announce price increases. And they had paused for a while during COVID, but recently have gotten back on the price hike train. And so practically over a decade that I've been in the business, the average cost of interchange has increased. But generally speaking, that gets passed through to the merchants. And so a lot of the pricing structures that our software companies implement are called interchange plus pricing models. And so we're simply passing through whatever the direct costs are from the card brands and then adding a fixed markup on top of that. And so in a lot of our models, our margins are fixed, but the cost is actually variable to the end merchants. Understood. I mean, and more fundamentally, as we start taking more of a worldview and love to hear your thoughts on a number of topics when it comes to the payment business models. You know, again, there one of the rumblings in the industry is that it ultimately is a race to the bottom for some in, in the industry because you have this constant hiking and the constant pressure on the network's part to keep increasing what they charge. Which brings me to one of my favorite topics, which is looking at alternatives, ways to move money around and payment rails, right? We're dealing with infrastructure on some level that is either arcane or heavily controlled by oligopolies. Whereas, you know, for example, if you look at blockchain-based stable coins, for example, they offer, and I know there's a lot of things that need to be solved around the endpoints and KYC ML and, and things like that, not to mention the construct of the stable coins themselves and the collateral. But we're talking about the ability to have very, very high predictability and how much it actually costs to move any amount of money around, right? So I'd love to hear your thoughts around more at a, at a macro level, your thoughts on where payment industry is going and where rails are going and going back to that business model discussion. Yeah. No, I, I think it's an awesome question. I was at a cocktail party at Funny 2020 recently having a very similar discussion. And when I think about this problem overall, the idea of you know alternate payment methods or alternate payment rails being able to displace incumbents like Visa and MasterCard, is it possible? Absolutely. There's plenty of examples globally where in either certain industries or certain geographies, you see alternate payment methods like a PIX or an Ideal that have come in and taken significant market share away from incumbent solutions because, in my opinion, they've been able to solve for one of the biggest challenges being the fact that it's really this like two-sided equation. You've got presentment and acceptance. So does the consumer actually want to pay with whatever payment method? And then is the small business able to accept whatever that given alternate payment method is? And the situations where you've seen either in certain verticals or certain geographies where these alternate payment methods have been successful and have captured significant market share and have been able to drive significant adoption, they have been able to solve for both sides of that equation. They have a significant volume of consumers that are demanding that this is how they want to pay. And then they have a high percentage of businesses. They have a high penetration of acceptance within that particular vertical or, or category for that payment method. And I think oftentimes this gets talked about in the form of crypto. Like, when are you going to be able to pay Walmart with Bitcoin? And I think the challenge, especially here 
in the US is that currently both sides of that equation are struggling. Consumers are not demanding in mass that they want to pay with crypto. And then businesses on average do not have the technology to be able to accept crypto. And so often I get asked, you know, well, when is Tilled going to help with this problem? And going back to the discussion that we had at the beginning of the episode talking about really diving deep on the problem. And for me, we interview our software partners. I talk to competitors. We talk to merchants. And the reality is at this point in time, we are not seeing the demand high enough on either side of that equation. We are not seeing consumers demanding that they have to pay with crypto, and we are not seeing merchants that are really pushing for it. And so until that happens, our software partners are not going to be pushing Tilled to have that as a part of our platform. But practically speaking, when I think about the zoom out from kind of where we are today, I do think that it's more a matter of when, not if you start to see disruption against the traditional rails. And so for me, if you fast forward 10, 15, 20 years, I think you will start to see this acceleration of, I don't know what, but some alternate payment method here in the States starting to take shape. But the reality for someone like Tilled in the position that we're in is that we are really an infrastructure technology provider. And so it doesn't necessarily matter what the rail is. Money still needs to be moved. And merchants need to figure out how to get access to that. Software companies tend to need infrastructure solutions to make it easy for them. And so there's still opportunities for folks like us and even potentially the traditional incumbents to participate in whatever that new reality looks like in the future. Yeah, no, well said. And again, I think in order for this to really start gaining adoption, I think one thing that the crypto industry hasn't done a great job, and I know there's some teams working on it, there needs to be more of it, is they really haven't been able to capture the attention of the consumer from a form factor usability practical standpoint, aside from these highly speculative endeavors, which will attract people, but for the wrong reasons, not because of usability. Look, if you can make money doing something, even if it's clunky, you're going to adopt it. You're going to play around with it. And I think that's a lot of what happened over the last few years was that I think we need to move to applications and ultimately, it needs to end up. So I'm curious to see what PayPal's initiative around stable coins and how they're going to really integrate within their app and how to make it really easy. Like technologically speaking, it's not hard to have an app right now to be able to send your friends money in stablecoin form. I think digitally native younger generations are ready for this, right? They think in terms of digital, they think in terms of tokens, they probably don't really care for that dollar bill in their pocket. There's probably no dollar bill in their pocket. For them, the form of money is digital. But I think someone or an aggregate, like I think forward-looking investment needs to take that risk. And I understand from your perspective, you got a fiduciary duty that probably puts you at odds with doing too much of that seeding unless you start sitting on a pile of cash and you're like, well, I as CEO and my vision is we need to fund this. We need to fund this effort. But it's a stretch, right? Especially from where you are. The last thing I wanted to ask you as, as we wrap up is, it's pretty obvious when you look at global numbers, right? And historically, the US has never really been at the forefront of 
really innovation and one would say adoption when it comes to payments, right? I mean, I remember I grew up in Europe. We had debit cards with chips and electronic payment means in the 90s. When I first came to the US, I remember much later on still going to restaurants and splitting the tab using dollar bills and being very surprised, right? So if you look at real-time transactions in the top 10 markets in the world globally, US is a laggard, right? Compared to obviously Asia is obviously way ahead. But even countries like the UK dwarf the US in terms of real-time transactions for a slew of reasons. What are your thoughts on the United States' leadership position in that field and what needs to happen to catch up? Yeah, I mean, certainly no denying the data that we are not on the forefront of adoption and innovation when it comes to real-time payments. And I feel like, frankly, it goes back to the conversation we were having earlier about the idea of presentment and acceptance. And I feel like right now, we're struggling on both sides of that equation where there's really not a great interface or experience for me as the consumer wanting to pay with real-time payments. I'm in this business and I don't really know how to easily go get access to that. And so I think you're starting to see some banks adopting real-time payment capabilities, but it is not easy today. So I think that needs to be true. I think you need to have the banks or whatever the wallet app that the consumers are using to manage their money needs to have it where it's easy for the cardholder or consumer to be able to take advantage. And then really, there's a struggle at the moment on the merchant and infrastructure provider side, starting to think through who holds the liability and who manages the risk and liability here. And there's still some challenges with the current instant money movement options where once those funds are settled, <laughs> it's pretty hard to get them back. And if you're only making uh, 10 cents or whatever it is, moving that transaction, that's a lot of risk to take for not a lot of upside. And so I feel like there's still some fundamental structural challenges that need to be sorted through at the infrastructure level and then UI experience improvements at the consumer level to really allow the U.S. to catch up. Great. What a great picture. And thank you for your insights. Thank you for this really thorough overview of your space, your world. Congratulations on taking your business from scratch and building it into what it's becoming. So I've truly enjoyed this. I think listeners will have learned a lot from this call. And I welcome the opportunity to watch you evolve over the next couple of years and see more progress coming your way. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for the opportunity today to share my story. And hopefully it resonated with some of the listeners here today. If folks do want to learn more about me personally or Tilled as a business, certainly feel free to check out our website, Tilled.com. But LinkedIn is also a phenomenal place to follow along on the journey. And so come follow me, Caleb Avery, or, or Tilled the company on, on LinkedIn. But thanks so much for the opportunity and thanks for the time today. Of course. Take care. This podcast is produced by Rado Venture Management, LLC, RVM. RVM is not an investment advisor. The opinions expressed in this program are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views or positions of any entities they represent, not investment advice.